On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 114th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B, the Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my co-host and partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson, from the East Coast of the United States of America. And we thank everybody for tuning in last week to our show on Jerry Rafferty's City to City. I know for some hard rock guys, Jerry City to City is probably not going to be one that a lot of you are familiar with, or you'd be surprised maybe we might review it. But look, between Baker Street, right down the line, Jerry's voice, that great sax solo, it's a really nice change of pace. It was celebrating its 45th anniversary, and so we wanted to take the opportunity to spread the word on the greatness of Jerry Rafferty and the importance of that album, City to City, in his life and career. So hopefully you check that out. And it's not like it wasn't a big album. It sold more than 6 million copies, I think. But we're going to shift gears back this week to an album that I know a lot more of you are familiar with. It was big for us growing up. It had big impact via MTV and the radio. Released in 1983... On February 28th, U2's War really changed the game. They were an upcoming band. They had some small hits before this album, but this is the one that really separated them, where you started to see their conscious a little bit more, their earnestness, and the way they put their songs together between the edges songwriting and melody making, the rhythm section of Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. really took a big step forward. They are in the pocket. They are in the groove. They are laying down some really funky stuff. It's not just rock and roll. It's really pretty darn good. And, of course, Bono is not only belting out these songs, but he's writing lyrics that mean something that will educate those who are in the uninitiated, who live maybe in the safe American suburbs, that, yeah, there's some horrible things going on in the world. It's not just a million miles away. For some of us, it's in our backyard. Obviously, that's what Sunday Bloody Sunday is about. We're going to go track by track and review some of the B-sides because U2 over the years has always been good about making extra songs. They've got B-sides. They've got some odd covers. They've got some stuff that they hide in the closet and they bring it back on special issues sometimes. And so we'll, we'll talk about some of those as well because this was a big one for a lot of people. But first, we got to take care of a little business. As our listeners know, we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, a network of almost 100 shows about all kinds of music. It's not just rock and roll, but everything out there, all genres, there's something for everyone. And we like to give shout-outs to the folks that we've had on our show or maybe we've been on theirs, like the founder, Christian Swain, on Rock and Roll Archaeology, like Christy Alexander Hallberg of Rock is Lit, like Martin Popoff in History in Five Songs, like Jay from The Hook Rocks, like our dear friend Paul Stevenson of Vintage Rock Pod and This Day Rocks, and of course, the Kiss Kings themselves, Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loudcast. And we want you to go check out our sponsor, rarevinyl.com. They're based in the UK, guys, but rarevinyl.com ships all over the world. And they have a quarter of a million items in stock. Yes, they've got your LPs, your CDs, but you've also got 7-inch singles, 12-inch singles, DVDs, tour posters, tour programs, ticket stubs, 
all sorts of amazing things in there. They have a great team, and if you use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, you can save 10% off every single order you make. Not just your first order, but every order you make. So if you want to go find some rare U2 stuff, or maybe first edition, in good shape stuff, something you've been looking for a long time, go to rarevinyl.com or EIL.com, it's their sister site, and use the code PODCAST. They'll ship it to you. And you know U2 has a lot of great, amazing stuff out there, so I encourage you to do that. Now back to U2's war. I was a little young when this came out. When it first came out, I was not quite 10 years old. I knew I liked the rhythm and the sound of New Year's Day. I didn't necessarily know what it was about. I didn't necessarily understand what a lot of these songs were about until I got older. And when we were in high school at Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum, and then eventually we were at college, things like Octung Baby came out. And U2 had established themselves as one of the biggest bands in the world. But this one really kind of set the foundation. It's their third album, but it's a third album that really took a big leap forward for them sonically, lyrically, and just exposure-wise, because MTV had their back. And the Under a Blood Red Sky live album, which also came out in 1983, really helped propel them as well. Sunday Bloody Sunday video from Red Rocks, which was all over MTV, was a huge part of their success, especially in America. So this is going to be a long one. We're going to jump into it. It's me and Action Jackson talking about U2's war right here on The Wolf. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. But let's get into war, man. Let's get into U2's war. I mean, look, we love Jerry Rafferty, and it's fine. That's kind of a quirky little thing that some people knew about, mm-hmm. right? And, and not everybody's into it. It's like, oh, yeah, I know that song or whatever. But U2's war was huge for our generation. And even though when it came out in early 83, you were 10, I was 9 when it came out, we, we probably didn't pick up on it till we were a little bit older. But because of some of the songs on there were hits and because I feel like older kids that I knew, like older brothers and sisters, had this thing, it was big for our generation when we were young. Obviously, it means more, I think, now as adults. But even as 9- and 10-year-olds, this thing was breaking through in a way that maybe some other bands didn't. Absolutely. And I would like to say that I was really cool and knew about this in 1983 or 84 but I didn't. Right. I, I came to U2, as most people did my age, through the Joshua Tree. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you kind of, you heard that, you love that. And they said, okay, well, if you like that, there's more. And I didn't get into this album until I was probably in high school and then kind of worked it backwards from there. So it was a, it's an interesting record to pick up now. And especially when you listen to it in context with what would come next, this is very, a very big turning point for the band. This is what kind of put them on the map and set them on the path from being just kind of a pop band to being what they are today. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. Obviously, you 2 about the biggest rock band in the world. One of the few who can just, okay, we're going to do a tour, and you know it's going to be stadiums, mm-hmm. and not just like North American Europe. It's literally anywhere they go set foot, it's going to be in front of tens of thousands of people. And it's not just because of their great tunes, but it's because of their earnestness, mm-hmm. if that's a word. You know, they're not just talking about, singing about hot rods and chicks or falling in love and things like that. They're talking about war. They're talking about children, you know, with broken bottles under their feet. They're talking about heavy things that I think in the suburbs of America in the 80s, in the Reagan era, that's not something we were real familiar with, right? That That's mm-hmm. something we blocked out that society and the news and our parents had tried to kind of keep us away from. So, I mean, it's great that Duran Duran have these funky pop hits. It's cool that Men at Work have these quirky, fun songs. That's kind of who they're, quote unquote, competing with. That's kind of who they're up against. But they're singing about stuff that's a little more heavy. It's a little more life and death, and it can give you a bit of an education. And I feel like they got a lot of that from their love of the Clash. Yes, I think they were they were the band. I don't know. U two is very strange in this country because people they love them, but they also want to hate them too. They always want to pick them apart because they're preaching to us. Correct. Just keep that out of it, man. Just right. play the rock and roll. Right. But they do it in a way, they put it in a very nice package, kind of like we talked about Marvin Gaye, uh, what's going on. If mm-hmm. you listen to that record, you can kind of listen to it and, and float along the top. And, and it, But if you get into the message, it's pretty heavy duty. This is a little more in your face, but you can still have the hits on the radio and not be completely depressed. So I think in this country, we... Like you said, we, you can't be two, you can't be more than one thing. You can't be political and really popular, but they managed to do that and and still persevere today. And you've got Bono, who a lot of people want to hate on because, you know, oh, he's very preachy and he's, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, he's a guy who's, you know, he's got, what did they say? Nelson Mandela on speed dial. I mean, right. he's a guy who's really took his position and, and did a lot of good or at least put a lot of stuff out there for people to to think about. You're absolutely correct on that. And yeah, I, I, I remember I went to see Roger Waters a few years back, and I heard some of the uh, some of the crackers in the crowd. Went, oh, man, just sing the songs. Don't get into politics. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he was really winding up Trump, you know, during as you would expect <laughs> Roger Waters to. I'm like, well, have you ever listened to any of Roger Waters' lyrics before? I mean, are you just listening to the tune and like, oh, that's cool? Or do you actually listen to what he's saying? Because that shouldn't surprise you mm-hmm. that he's political or that he's he's – you know, but he has pig man and he's flipping off Donald Trump. Like, <laughs> you should know that's coming, but yeah, but that's okay. But but you're right. And you know, obviously in the British press, in the lily white suburbs that we lived in and grew up in, we didn't hear about this. War is a billion miles away. Well, in Ireland, it's not a billion miles away. You know, go to right. Belfast throughout the ages, really, at least, you know, the last 70 years or 100 years or whatever. And uh, there have been issues. There's always been problems. The British press really 
downplay it. They just call it, it's the Troubles. It's the Troubles <laughs> in Northern Ireland. Uh-huh. Yeah. The trouble is you're on our land, you sacks. It's speaking as one and a half Irishmen or Irish Americans here. You know, we really don't like that. Not that as Americans we can say we're not imperialistic or anything. We've we've got what? our own issues to deal with. <laughs> but it was it just seemed like the British were getting kicked out of everything. They used to run the whole world, but then they're kicked out of China. They're kicked out of India. They've been kicked out of the U.S. for almost 250 years now. They get kicked out of South America, South Africa. They got kicked out of. So like, but we got to keep our foot on somebody's neck. So how about these people who were just right across the Irish Sea here? You know, we can hold on to that bit of our mm-hmm. empire but it just goes to show you know they're they're not just racist they're elitist you know irish people basically look exactly like them and sound a lot like them but they treat them just like the black folks in south africa just like the native americans in america it's just like the chinese or the indians you're all beneath us you know mm-hmm. so just it, it, enjoy our rule <laughs> but and not everybody enjoys that rule. I'm sorry to tell you, and I'm sorry to alienate our second biggest market, but that's the way it is. And you would think that no one would, but I think that there is, isn't there a uh, a movement in Ireland? Some people want to be part of the, the British empire. So oh, you sure. have that very strange, you know, dichotomy of how would you, I mean, I mean, I don't know, speaking from an American, you know, that doesn't fly here. If somebody right. came, oh, we're going to take, no, you're not. In fact, we threw you out not once, but twice. Have a nice day. Yep. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's a very, very interesting place to live because, especially at that time, because things were really starting to bubble over and it's just something that we don't, we didn't have a context of in the United States. I mean, the only thing that I could think of was like Vietnam, but like that, even though that was a lot of unrest in the, in the United States, it didn't happen here. It was a million miles away. That's happening right there. Exactly. You know, and, and 1972 bloody Sundays when British Mm -hmm. soldiers shot and killed 13 unarmed civilians. And yeah, they're protesting and they're flipping them off and maybe they're throwing rocks at them, but they don't have any guns and you (laughs) shoot them all. That's nonsense, you know? So that's kind of where they grew up. And then as they become teenagers and they're getting into music, who comes on the scene? It's the clash, you know? Mm -hmm. And Sandinista comes out and like, well, I may not know anything about Nicaragua or where the Sandinistas are, what that's about, but about young people ready to fight, fight for their own country. I know something about that. That Mm -hmm. resonates with me, you know? And so they, they took what they knew as far as their melodies and their songs, molded it with the punk of the late seventies that everybody was into. And, but also with the new wave that was kind of coming in the early eighties and then eventually coming on MTV And after some success with their first album, Boy, and their second album, October, this album, War, is a big step forward, not only from the the context of what they're saying, but sonically. I I think they take a big step forward. And the rhythm section with Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton, they're better than they ever were. It's almost night and day versus the first two records. I would agree with you on that. I think the first two... Boy and and October were them kind of finding their way in the world as an individual, mm-hmm. and then now we're we're making a pretty hard right turn to embrace themes in the in the world. Like how do I fit in? How how do we the the things that are going on now? How do we tackle that instead of just being one person? And I think you're right. I, instead of playing right to the max, they kind of backed it down. I think that's a big thing with Steve Lillywhite is he took them. He's like, okay, let's don't go all the way to the edge of what you can do. Kind of go middle, but do it really well. 
And I think that's kind of the other problem with U2 is that they don't really fit the box. Like, what are they? They're kind of new wave. They're kind of punk. The Edge doesn't really play guitar like anybody else, but that gives Mullen and Adam Clayton a chance to fill in and do things kind of almost sideways. Like they do funky stuff to fill in. And so they really don't sound like anyone else, but you're right. I think they're a lot tighter on this one. And I think that the two of them drive the ship on this and let the edge kind of fill in where he, where he wants to. Well, and you mentioned Steve Lily White, he did produce their first three records. So this is their third Mm -hmm. record. And and so he had worked with them, taking them from young pups in there, but even the title war, obviously that's provocative. Mm -hmm. You know, you could call it, you know, you call it Sunday, bloody Sunday. You'd call it, you know, one of the other songs of the album were given a different name. You call it Surrender. That's much different than War. Uh, and so that even Edge is like, that could have backfired. That, that could have worked against us. Yes, it's it's there to provoke people. It's, it's there to make a statement, but it could have clobbered us too. I think overall, and, and given the, the way that Sunday Bloody Sunday was received around the world, I think it works. It was, they were bold about it. And it paid off. And I think even from the, you know, you start from the beginning, it just the the cover of it is it's actually the same kid from Boy. I know. You know he's he's grown up a little bit, but it's whereas, yeah, because I'm looking at the Boy album now, he's kind of like this. It's, it's And it's pretty much the same pose. You know, he's this kind of little bright, wide eyed kid. And now we're fast forwarding. What is this? 1980 is when Boy came out. So three years later, now he looks like he's like, mad now he looks like he's been out of shape he looks like his lip looks a little busted up it looks like he's he's a kid who's seen some things and is growing up in a place that is not really that great for that kind of not really that great for young kids like he's had it looks like he's had a tough life it looks like he's seen some things so right they're kind of setting the tone even with the album cover and that's peter rowan who is the son of bono's friend guji Rowan. He is on the cover of Boy. He was also on Best of 80 to 1990 with the uh, the helmet helmet on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the singles, including some of the singles off this record. Mm. I got to be honest with you. Obviously, on Boy, he definitely looked like a boy. But on this record back in the day, because his eyes are really pretty and then his hair is kind of short, I thought it could have been a girl. Okay. You know, and. You know, it, it possibly, and then that's kind of the irony. One was called Boy. Now we got a girl, a girl at war, mm-hmm. right? And it's you know, look, w- Irish women with short hair. Sheena Easton, Sinead O'Connor, Dolores from the Cranberries. Some of those Coors girls maybe had short hair at some point. I don't know. It, it wasn't unfathomable mm-hmm. to think that that could have been a girl because girls are just as subject to the horrors of war as boys are, right. and they have to be just as tough if not tougher, because, I mean, boys may get shot, they might get in prison, they might go to the front lines, but the girls get it worse. Yeah, and especially in a in a place where things are not so great, perhaps, you know, that kind of spills over until the home life. Mm-hmm. Who knows? So that's, that's the cover with the big red U2 war mm. down the side of it. Uh, and it, it did well, man. I mean, over 11 million copies sold worldwide, 4 million in the U.S. alone, double platinum in Britain, triple platinum UK, double platinum France, Australia. did very, very well all around. So, uh, so let's go ahead and get into this. And by the way, mm-hmm. all tracks are written by you 2 mm-hmm. And as we've spoken about on this show before, that is rare. But it's also, in my opinion, a big reason 
why U2 has never had any member shakeups or changes, right? Because they all share in it, you know, even right. though people right. do put their different parts in. And you say sometimes Edge might bring a song in that's pretty well done, or, you know, Bono's writing all the lyrics for the most part. Why doesn't he just take credit for that? Just like Peter Buck of REM said, look, we'll all bring our own stuff to the table. Bands break up because of the differences in publishing royalties, mm. right? So let's just all take it. We're all in this together. We came to this as teenagers with nothing. Let's all take it all together. And I swear to you that that has a huge, huge, huge factor in why they have never broken up. They've never had new members. It's always been the four of them for 45 years. <laughs> that That is unheard of in the rock game. There's all, yeah, there's always somebody who gets... They either get too full of themselves, they get too full of the partying lifestyle, or they just get bent out of shape with everybody else because they figure they're not getting the credit exactly. or the the, uh, or the, the money. money that they deserve. Yeah. yeah, but I think that I think that U two is a little bit different because I, I don't think they have many finished songs in the recording process. I think they have ideas mm-hmm. and then they just kind of explore the space. And I think that that lends itself to people being more creative because they know they're in it together. It's not like I'm playing your song. We're all playing our songs together. And it also helps that they're Zeppelin-esque, maybe not in style, but in that each individual is awfully good at what they do. Mm -hmm. And, And they don't need to encroach on each other. They can kind of give each other the space to do their own thing. Yes, and I think if you if you listen to what's going on here, there really isn't any. They're really kind of playing four individual parts. Nobody is. It all fits together, but no one's really following anyone else. Well, that's right. That's right. So it's collaborative, and the Mets mm-hmm. that's a true band, and it doesn't always work that way. As we, as rock fans, <laughs> and maybe even aficionados, if I can use that word. We know. I mean, ask right. the Eagles if it's all for one and one for all, right? Right. Or it's, you know, it, it, you come in with, you know, I write the songs, you do what I tell you to do. That It doesn't seem like there's really any kind of band direction. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's, it's, it's very much more collaborative. And they're really, I mean, like, you look like, has Bono ever made a solo record? No. no. Because, I mean, why would you if, you if you feel like you're being as creative as you possibly can in the band. The solo records usually come when you're like, forget you guys, I'm doing this by myself because I don't like how this is going. Although I've always kind of secretly hoped that Edge would do a solo record. Interesting. Just because I do like his voice. Okay. Uh, and, and, okay. and some of his songs like Van Diemen's Land or you know some of the songs that he's done over the years, like he's... And, and that would automatically be different from you too, because his voice is not Bono's voice, right? right. So right. it would be different enough to warrant that. Okay, let him go out and do that, and then work with maybe some other people and see where it goes. I guess I'm happy that he hasn't, because it hasn't mm-hmm. dissolved, you know, you two anyway. But I, I think that would be interesting. I, I would be more interested in that than a Bono solo. Record. Yeah, I would. I would imagine that a Bono solo record would probably be about the same, just probably not as funky with the different parts, but. I saw an interview with the with the circle and they asked Michael Anthony, well, how come, you know, wh- why were you not a lead singer? And he just he just got this look on his face like that, that's not me. It's just right. not me. I like doing my thing. I think the edge is kind of the same way. Like he he likes writing the music. He likes playing the guitar and singing background. But I just don't see him as wanting to secretly wanting to be the front man. He's just not that guy. I agree with you there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. (laughs) So let's get into it. 
track number one, side one, mm-hmm. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Just started off right down, Just right in the face. Right up. Let's let's get it kicked <laughs> off here. It's, it's a protest song. It's one of the best protest songs in the history of the world. Yeah, I was gonna say it starts with that with that drum beat. I mean, you you don't yeah you don't have to you could just play that and you know it's Sunday Bloody Sunday. That's right. And I I guess the thing was that Mullen they they somebody suggested the click track. Right, and trick. he's like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, and and then he because it's like it, I think it's to him it's like cheating. It's like a, I guess it's you're hearing the clicks in your ear like in your headphones. Right. And it's like a metronome. And so apparently that is like verboten to drummers. Like that's if you can't play, you have to use click yeah, track. I've got the beat, man. That's what I do. Right, right. But but in this song particularly, you can't miss. You can't miss this. You are. It's like a. It's like a machine. So I think he said, "Eh, you know what? Okay, I'll give it a try on this kind of. You know, evolve my drumming style. Mm-hmm. I mean, it works perfectly. And that's my thought: is if he misses one of those beats, the whole song is just." It just goes down the toilet because he is, he's setting the everything. Yeah. And look, he, he is setting everything and you're right. It's iconic. You know it as soon as you hear it, but so right. his edges work on that. The ringing melody to begin it is amazing. It's, it's yeah. iconic. But then later when he's, when he's doing the staccato stuff, which also sounds like a march, right? Correct. Yeah. That is a huge part of the song. And again, it kind of gives that march war kind of feel to it. Hmm. Referring to 72 Bloody Sunday, I think there was like a 1920 Bloody Sunday as well. So, I mean, this, Correct. these scars go way back. But I guess in the first line originally, it was something like, you know, we don't want to hear about the IRA or, the, you know, the other people in there. They decided to take that out mm-hmm. because they didn't want to reference to that because they, we didn't want to prop up the IRA because they saw them as, you know, they're prolonging the problem. Like, yes, they're fighting for freedom, but they're also doing some nasty stuff. And if it's nasty on both sides, it just makes it harder. You, you have less high ground, right? You know, kind of thing. I think it's the way they looked at it. So they changed, you know, I can't believe the news today is the first lyric. And then that that's kind of universal. And, and it's not even though it is Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And like you were saying, there were two separate Sunday, Bloody Sundays in Irish history. It's not really about that. It's about the only the only people who really get screwed on this are, are the people who are in the middle of this. And, you know, how long, how long do we sing this song? It's the same thing over and over. Why over do we have to keep over, doing this? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and really nothing, many laws, but tell me who has won. There, no one. No one. Yeah. No one. You know, that's the thing in, in war, especially in occupational war, people in similar countries, it just, it, it's, it's horrible. And, and, you know, eventually peace was brokered in the 1990s. Of course, with Brexit, suddenly it's all kind of coming up again because right. now there's this soft border between the EU and not the EU. So uh, what do you do? It's just, it, it makes it kind of ugly all over again. And there's people who, some people just want to watch the world burn. And mm. the fact that the British are there, well, that's their excuse for wanting to kill people, kill Catholics, kill Protestants, whoever right. you want to kill, right? right? And so now this stuff is kind of starting to nationalize bubbling up again 
everywhere in the world, it seems. But this was released as a single mm-hmm. in March. I think it was March 21st, 1983. The second single, however, it was only released in Germany and the Netherlands. Okay. With, with Endless Deep as the B-side. And with, uh, you know, the, the kid on, on the cover of, of the thing. On the exact same day, basically everywhere else in the world, Two Hearts Beat is One was released as a second single, same B-side. So they didn't really want to release it as a single uh-huh. Okay. in the UK, in Ireland, in the US, <laughs> because that would stir up too much shit, I feel like. Right. It did go to number three in the Netherlands, uh, my new home country. Uh, mm. Netherlands is not a huge place, but it's still, it, you know, I got up the charts there. And Germany, you know, needs to, they understand the horrors of war pretty well, I guess, and it's a big moment <laughs> for them. So um, so that comes out. So I just thought that was interesting. And the fact of the matter is, I remember when New Year's Day came out and seeing that video on MTV. But mm. I didn't really see Sunday Bloody Sunday until Under the Blood Red Sky came out and the video of him live at Red Rocks holding the right. flag up. You know, yeah. And that's what broke it huge for them in the U.S. Yeah, and and uh, I can't. I've got a friend who she was a she's a couple years younger than I am, and apparently they had a DVD, not a, probably not even DVD, VHS copy of Live at Red Rocks, and she was like, "That's the only thing we watched driving around in the car." So she can't. She always equates that song with this is not a. People think this is a rebel song. <laughs> it's not a rebel song. This is Sunday, bloody Sunday. That's and it. so yeah, that's that's the. Yeah, I think that was the first time we really got introduced to that here and then worked it backwards too. The it, and it's a great it's a great track. You know, he's got the flag that he's waving around and they're marching around in it and Red Rocks just looks like the greatest place on the face of the earth it, to watch a concert in that video. It, it's cool. And I've only seen one show. I got to see Neil Young there. Actually yeah. with the Alabama Shakes were awesome. Just All throwing right. that out there if you ever get a chance to see them, don't pass it up. But I mean, it was because of this that they really got lambasted. Like, if mm-hmm. you if you get legacy reviews, kind of like what we're doing now, many years after the fact, it's all five out of five, nine out of ten, AA plus everywhere. Mostly in the U.S., it was pretty positive. But <laughs> in the U.K., you know, they 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 ranked them pretty good. You know, they said you know, it, war is dull and static, and it cranks out blank liberal awareness. I'm like, yeah, that. That sounds like the Republicans today. You know, it just sounds familiar (laughs) to me. It's like, you know, they're just criticizing their betters because that's who we are. We're their betters. And I got two words for you, British music press. (laughs) You. Okay. You're missing the point. And I don't know who you were promoting at the time who was going to be so great. um, but Probably Fun Boy 3. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) The Pet Shop Boys have a new single. But now you can start to see some of this where in 1984-85, in the, where in the U.S. it's like, oh, wow, this U2 band is really starting to take off. But over in the U.K., it's like, U2 is doing well, but are they as good as Simple Minds? These two are kind of battling it out. Now, I love the Simple Minds, but 
as far as a global stage and album sales, not to mention what their music tends to mean to people. It's just you two's in a plane by mm. themselves. Yeah. Right? There's, there's no one else even close to be honest. You know what? One thing that they pointed out that was pointed out to me was that a lot of those bands at the time that were big, even like, you know, like culture club and Duran Duran, while they had big hits on the radio live, Mm-hmm. Right. not so great you two not that way at all they could come out there and kill it live and were the these these songs were written to play live be played live so there wasn't a whole lot of studio trickery in there so it translated really well to getting large crowds in there and seeing them yeah and what i guess i didn't realize is because i don't think you could tell the story of this record or sunday bloody sunday without the story of under a blood red sky live. Mm. You know? Now the the video live at Red Rocks was big, but the album itself only had one or two tracks that were live from Red Rocks. I think the rest were recording in Germany or something like that. Okay, but it was still a big deal in the U.S. And I didn't realize Jackson, that's the only official live release they've ever done. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Shocking to me. Yeah. Now, I mean, now look, they, if you're like part of YouTube.com, you're a subscriber, I think they have released stuff to those folks. It's like, you know, thanks for being part of the fan uh-huh. club. And, you know, and I have been part of the fan club at times because you had to join to get tickets, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've, I've done that at times. And I, I maybe I have some downloads, but as far as you can't go into a record store to buy a U2 live record except for Under a Blood Red Sky, which is interesting because it's only eight tracks and it had some non-album singles on there and maybe a B-side or something like that. And, and then, you know, I will follow in some of the hits off this record. Yeah. But because that it came out the same year, I think it really did help propel propel the, the album that much more. And not to mention, like I said, it puts Sunday Bloody Sunday on in a different class thanks to MTV, thanks to mm-hmm. that video from Red Rocks. Yeah, I really think that even though technically New Year's Day was the big single off of this, mm-hmm. to me that's always been the big one because of that because of that video. And experience through the TV of seeing it live and you know it lo- it looked it just looked like the place if you missed that you were always going to be sad. Exactly, you know. And so it because it wasn't released many places it didn't I mean like like I said number 3 in the Netherlands like number 11 in Belgium or whatever it just it didn't hit a lot of places as a single however its legacy is much bigger than mm. what happened on the charts that's for sure right and unfortunately like you were saying you know we still haven't solved that problem how many years later and it could be cre- uh, creeping back into existence again yeah how long yeah must we sing this song <laughs> Hi, this is Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of the novel Searching for Jimmy Page, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
works. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. All right, well, let's move on to Seconds, which mm-hmm. is the second song on the record. Did they yep. do that on purpose? Maybe. Uh, and it takes a second to say goodbye. Apparently, Edge wrote that line. When Bono was having a little bit of difficulty coming up with some lyrics, he wrote that line. And then Bono was off and running from there. And I guess Edge actually sang the first couple of stanzas or whatever in this song that's what i heard it's really hard for me to tell the difference i mean if if he did on this one i agree yeah Yeah. and and so maybe who knows maybe at this point in time he's trying to sing like bono because he you know he can sing but you you're trying to find your style and and so you you maybe mimic what he's saying this this has kind of the same drum beat at the beginning or kind of the same sound to it it's sunday bloody Um, sunday right correct that's in my notes i'm like this is very similar yeah right and then the bass drops in and you're like okay boom and you you got the acoustic guitar okay well this is going to be a different you know this is going to be a different feel a different vibe and then you go into a text a second second to say goodbye push the button and say good okay now we're talking about nukes yep well we were going to be happy, but not so much now. Now you're telling me that basically we are one second away from annihilating each other. And guess what? Still that way today. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I know. It's back all of a sudden. Right. Something during the Cold War and even in the 80s, we worried about, you know, it's mm-hmm. like a threat of nuclear war. And it's not like they're the only ones who wrote songs like this. Sting did and Rush did. And, and a lot of people sang about worrying about nuclear war. I mean, it's just something that, that you kind of lived with and sometimes it would bubble up yeah. and it seemed to go away after the fall of the Soviet Union, but it, it does seem to be bubbling back up again here. You're right. And I guess they, you know, they played it. They did a pretty good tour to promote war at 110 dates in Europe, North America, and Japan. And so they played this song on that tour, but allegedly have not played it since July of 85. Which, you know, compared to Sunday Bloody Sunday, it's, you know, it's one of their biggest songs, one of their top five songs as far as most played songs. I think they they tried to stop playing it for a while, but then eventually they kind of had to bring it back. It's like, it's just popular. It's just, you know, it's something people want to hear. I would would be interested to see how this sounds live. It's because it's kind of funky. And so Mm -hmm. I don't, it, it might be one of those things where it's like, where does it fit in the set? I don't know. Cause it's a good song. I enjoy listening to it. And it does, it's one of those ones where, Again, if you if you just listen to the song, you're like, oh, okay, that was man, that was fun to listen to. It's got a mm-hmm. funky little groove to it. But then you listen to what he's saying, and you're like, oh boy, you know, yeah. building the bomb in a in a someplace, you know, in a apartment in Times Square because you're gonna mess with somebody and. 
to, you know, domestic terrorism. Oh, boy. It's heavy-duty themes going on. along mm-hmm. to the third track mm-hmm. new year's day now this song i love and i have mm-hmm. ever since i first heard it as a nine-year-old in 1983 when it came out saw the video on mtv with the boys in the snow on horseback with the white flag on their back so of course for most of my life i always assumed, well this is this is also about the troubles in ireland a bit you know about the war kind of going on there but apparently it's about Polish solidarity, which I I, I remember hearing about Lech Walesa on the news mm-hmm. at this time, but I still didn't process what any of that meant. Right. Yeah, I, I remember him. I remember, yes, there's problems in Poland, but then I'm thinking to myself, well, there's problems everywhere in Europe. I'm glad I live in the United States where we have no problems. Right. Eh, okay. <laughs> Uh, but this is one of those, this is a song where I don't know, when I hear of it, it sounds very bleak and very cold. But is that because I'm hearing that? Or is that because I've, I've seen the video so many times where it's cold and it's New Year's Day? So I think for me, this is one of those ones where they, they really, I saw the video before I ever heard the song on the radio. Uh-huh. So it always, it, it kind of just keyed that in. That's always what I'm thinking. It's just this, you know, just frozen landscape where everything is cold and it's it's a weird theme too because it's you're starting over on new year's day but then he's saying nothing changes on new year's day like we're still the same still the same things happening it's not a fresh restart To me, the song is about two things. The the driving Clayton bass. That is great. And then it's not even Edge's guitar. It's his piano that is, it kind of sets the tone for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it comes back in the middle before he does a little bit of a solo. Look, Edge isn't really known for his solos. He's known for his textures. He's known for his melodies. And he can use some pretty cool effects, especially later in his career. There's a little bit of a solo on this after the second piano refrain. It's not blistering or anything, but it's, he's like one of those guys that just, it's perfect for the song. He's, he's not trying to impress you. He's trying to do right by the tune. And I think he's on the money on this one. And that's where I always had a problem with him. I always had a problem because he's not, the the riff master he's not out there you know hammering on and playing these giant riffs but and and i think it was it had to have been when i think when octung baby came out and they were there was a thing on mtv that where they were talking to him about you know what he was doing and he's standing there and he's got his guitar but he's got a rig on the floor that's like a modified keyboard and he's mm-hmm. singing background and oh wait a minute this dude's working way harder than i ever thought he did and there's a great a clip of them i think it was at the, the us festival in 83 yeah that's mm-hmm. what it kind of looked like in the back 
And so he's sitting at the piano, but he's got the guitar on his lap and he's playing the piano and then the guitar and then back to the piano. I'm like, okay, this guy, I mean, he might not be, you know, Angus Young. Right. But he's really working hard. And you're right. He's giving the song exactly what it needs. And at the same time, letting everybody else do their thing too without taking over. So yeah, he's he's a lot. It's more it's more like what you don't play with him, exactly what the song needs and and doing a lot that you really can't hear until you get not that you can't hear, it, but you don't process it until you really get into what he's doing. Yeah, that's that's I mean, I think he's big time. His, his talent is kind of ridiculous. Yes. New Year's Day was released as a single on the 10th of January, about six weeks before the release of the record on the 28th of February there. So mm. this was the lead single. And it was uh, it was backed with uh, treasure. Whatever happened to Pete the Chop, which I actually didn't listen to uh, before <laughs> this. I- I'm sorry to say. <laughs> But, you know, it, it, it did awfully well. I mean, it, you know, number two on Billboard's top tracks, uh, I mean, top 10 in the UK, top 10 here in the Netherlands, number two in Ireland, and did well around the world. So uh, look, it, it's a great song. And I would say it's one of their top three songs of all time. They, they have played that forever. I mean, it, it, as soon as it got into the set list, it's barely been out. Yeah, I was going to say if you if you were to show up at a YouTube show and did not hear this, you would be very upset. Well, you know, I mean, they now have such a catalog mm-hmm. that they could do they they could retire some songs for a tour or two and then bring them back. But this that one is huge for them, and it's it's an amazing song, and it should be like the number three or so most played song in their catalog live, mm-hmm. and and it is. And one of the things that kind of goes through this whole record is that it's called war and there's a lot of themes about struggles and and hard times but there's also a lot of love in this record kind of an undertone like like bono had just gotten married to his high school sweetheart who i think he's still married to yes he and ali have been married for 40 plus years definitely the not the norm of the uh rock frontman especially in the 80s Mm -hmm. so in this one it's like you know what what are we saying here because he says i will be with you again you know it's this that's positive though right 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 there's this war overtone but it's still like it's still gonna work out right correct correct yeah so i think there's I think that's that's what they do well in this. It's not all doom and gloom. They, there is hope in in these in the message that they're trying to give you. Right, and even on Sunday Bloody Sunday, how long was he singing the song? Those are the major chords. It's it's mm-hmm. up. It's brighter. Than right. the, you know, we're not we're not down here wallowing. It's bright, you know. So mm-hmm. I agree with you. The way they juxtapose those things is part of their greatness. Yeah. Now those are big songs, big hits. But like a song, number four song on here, kind of a revolution song. It's very fast paced. And it sounds like, and, and from what I've researched on, it was like they were getting flack for being too 
earnest or, or too having too many feelings. So it's like they needed to get back to their punk roots for this mm-hmm. one, and I, they do a pretty good job of it. I got to tell you. Yeah, I, I said this one. This one sounds more new wave right off the bat. So now we're back in the club. We've got the bass pumping. I mean, you can you could put this on. You're not putting on Sunday Bloody Sunday or New Year's Day in a club and dancing to it. You're not. Right. This you could. This sounds a lot more of the time than the, those other songs so far. And it's driving, yeah. driving kind of beat there. There's a break there, but there's there's no guitar solo for the break. It's just kind mm-hmm. of like okay, we slow it down, then boom, we bring it back up. Um, apparently, it was only played live once, just okay. once, which is too bad because. And and look, I, I know they did Joshua Tree in its entirety for its 30th anniversary. I went and saw them do that live, and I, I guess I'm glad they haven't given every album the whole okay, we're going to play it in its entirety. Mm-hmm. But it seems like. There's some stuff they could revisit with this one. They've got a new record coming out where they rework all of their old songs. Like it comes okay. out in March, and I think there's a there's a single CD which is maybe 16 songs or something like that. There's a double with 20, but what you want is the four set because there's one for each member of the band, and they do it from their entire career. They totally like Edge reworked them, put them in different keys transfer to piano so we could transfer them back to do something new with them. And I am very interested in, huh. in hearing that. I will okay. be buying that the first day it comes out. I haven't yet just because I don't know where the hell to send it yet. <laughs> but but this is one I would like to, to hear live. And so if they were to play it live, I would love it. But, you know, maybe if they reworked it, I, I don't know. But it, it's an interesting one in the catalog to me. Well, and it's a nice, it's a nice, at this point in time, we're on song track four now. It's a nice change of pace here. You know, it, you were kind of, I don't want to say doom and gloom, but they're working these, you know, you got three kind of downer songs as far as the message. This one's more just, like I said, get back in the club. Let's get that mm-hmm. bass going. And we're, we're dancing around again. And we're doing it again. Yeah. yeah. So it's fast pace it up. But of course, to round outside one, the fifth song, Drowning Man. And eh, now we're doing something acoustic. Talk about a change of pace, <laughs> right? Totally different. Totally yeah. different than than everything I think on the album. The bass is killer on mm-hmm. this from Clayton, but it's understated. It's not like New Year's Day where it's kind of that's the riff, like that's that's the sound, that's the melody. It's it's doing a lot of good stuff there, but it's not up in your face. Right. I, I don't know. I think I don't know if they ever played this one live. This might be a set killer though, because it's so much slower and it's very it's very haunting. And you don't, you're trying to figure out what he's saying here in the title too, like drowning band. Like, what are we doing here? Cause it kind of sounds like it's somebody who's in trouble, mm-hmm. but he's saying, Hey, you know, hang on and I'll be there for you. The string arrangement is, is very haunting too on this one. It's a very, it works, but it's very strange here. Promised 
it is and well i mean there's a there's a violin on there right mm-hmm. and that was played by steve wickham who i who also did some of the violin on uh who did the violin on sunday bloody sunday and okay. i guess he he bumped into the edge like at the bus stop or something like this like, <laughs> Need a violin, anything to round out the album or whatever. And not only did he go on Sunday Bloody Sunday to do that violin on there, but he he throws it on here as well. But the the, the background singers, or I guess part of uh, Coconuts, the the correct, was, yeah, the uh, um, Kid Creole and the Coconuts. So you, you hear, you know, some ladies on there. Well, that's that's mm-hmm. a little different than a than a U two song for the most right. part, you know. Some different textures here. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's really different from all the others. Somehow it still fits in with all of it. It, it all it, it makes sense on the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a rumor that it was played once live. It's hard to imagine them pulling this off. They, like there is no record of it, but they say, well, we hear that there's this one show in '83 where maybe it happened. There's no video or audio of it, so we're kind of taking somebody's word for it. But I mean, I, I, it doesn't seem like it's something they could recreate live very easily. Yeah, and and it, it's such a it really doesn't sound like anything else they've ever done before. So I just don't, I don't know how you would fit it into the set. I don't know. It's a real departure. Yeah. There's yeah. no doubt about it, but you know, if they do this to, to kind of round out the side. Okay. All right. That's side one. Now we start side two with the refugee, right? With those syncopated mm-hmm. drums and yeah. what? Whoa. It's an upbeat groove though. It's, it's right. and again, they're in the pocket again. Clayton and Mullen are, are together on this thing. It's so good to me. Those two are so underrated versus Edge and Bono. I guess it's mm-hmm. because they're using their real names. You know, that's, I was thinking about that too. At what point in time does that, does that happen? You know, like you're, you, you knew each other since you were kids, you know, you just kind of start this band and then one day he shows up and they're like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Um, you can call me the edge. What? What? Okay, should I call you Edge or, or yeah, The? It, yeah. <laughs> hey, The, you want to put down yeah. some acoustic stuff on this one? <laughs> right. And then so and then you've got well, and I'm Bono. Uh, do you want now? I'm just I'm cool. I'm I'm yeah, I'm you're, Adam you're Paul and I used yeah. to do but your homework for you, you Correct. Son, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your mom used to yell at you when you came home late. We used to ride bikes. Yeah. No, I'm cool with Adam Clayton, and you know, I guess to I don't know who Larry Mullen Senior is, but that's kind of a cool that he was always the shout out to the old man. But yeah, I mean, no, we're we're good back here. We're we're cool. Don't worry about us. Yeah, is it true that Adam Clayton he may be English, and then he he had maybe lived in South Africa or Zimbabwe or something like that, and then eventually moved to Ireland? Is that's that... what it seemed like? Yeah, like yeah. he was. Yeah, because I because I was going through looking at everybody because that was part of it too. They're all from well, the three of them are from Dublin, mm-hmm. and then Clayton I guess was born in in England and then ended up in Dublin, right. and that's how they all met. But yeah, that's. It, he is the one outlier and he's he he kind of always seemed like like he doesn't really say a whole bunch but he's kind mm-hmm. of a strange cat but that's kind of what you need on the base true yeah and the, the, thing, the thing is it was still at this point i mean he had a blonde afro the first yeah. couple records man i mean <laughs> honestly by the time they got to unforgettable fire i'm like oh they got a new bass player because he looked so different his head looked so different you know he, he was a blonde fro and then all of a sudden he's got this real short hair with glasses i'm like well that's a totally different dude it wasn't but anyway uh you know refugee you know it's talking about you know one day she's going to live in america I, I think larry really shines a bit here uh, mm. it, it's interesting that they they started the second side with this one to me 
Well, the the one thing that I found interesting about doing doing research on this is that at the time, if you were in London, America was not ugh, America. Ugh, yeah, we don't care about you. We're in Ireland, America, yeah. <laughs> everybody we could they couldn't wait. Like that was the promised land. Like that was where you wanted to be. And so to have this idea of you know you're living in this place. I'm guessing Ireland, they don't say that, but you know, she's going to go to America. America still for them at that point in time was the promised land. They couldn't wait to get there. And this, this record was put together specifically to do well in the United States. They couldn't wait to get here and, and blow up. Why not, man? I mean, look, our families got out of Ireland oh, post-potato famine, you know, 1800s, 1900s, stuff like that. And Irish people really thrive in America, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's like 6 million Irish people in Ireland. There's like 36 million of them in America, you know, and, and they're, they do off the way. You can be president of the United States mm -hmm. if you're of Irish descent in America, you know, you can – be rich. You, you, you can do whatever you want, you know. So whereas still to this day and listen to our interview with Peter Bullock, with Deborah Bonham, even in the 80s and the 90s, he would come home with guitars and be like, hey there, you Mick, what are you doing with those guitars? Did you steal those? Where's your passport? Come over here. It's like, what are you talking about? Dude? <laughs> he, he looks just like you. What's your problem? Mm -hmm. You know, not that Irish people didn't have issues when they came to America in the 1800s, mm. but you know, but then eventually it, they persevered. Yeah. And then the Italians came like, okay, well, the Irish aren't so bad. You know? <laughs> uh, no, we don't want to offend our Italian no, American friends. We love everyone here. Absolutely. But song number two on the second side, Two Hearts Beat is One. Now, this is a pretty big hit. And this is a very mm. early 80s pop song, if you ask me. Yeah. And this is one of those you kind of forget this one's on the record because you've got the, you've got Sunday, bloody Sunday and new year's day. And then, Oh yeah, this one's on here too. I like this one. This is, this is different. The bass sets the main groove and the guitar is kind of the accent on top. Mm -hmm. uh, there really is no, I don't think there's any misunderstanding about what he's saying here. This is about his wife. Okay. Yes, you're right. It, it's a love song and you know, two hearts beat is one mm -hmm. true. However, uh oh. I always felt that maybe this could have been about Ireland too. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Beat is one, mm -hmm. right? Because they played it obviously a lot on this tour. In, in April in 85, it was phased out. But then they brought it back once for show in Dublin between Christmas uh, and New Year's in 1989. Mm. So they played in Dublin for that two hearts beat is one because it was a Good Friday Accord hadn't happened yet. So it was still divided. So maybe they saved it there. And then they didn't play it again for another 25 years, which is interesting because, I mean, it was a hit for them. I mean, yeah. number 12 U.S., number 18 U.K., number two in Ireland. You would think if you hit a number two hit, you would at least play it in your home country, you know, uh, a bit there. But they, they kind of phased it out. Like we said, it was the second single all over the world but Germany and the Netherlands and maybe Belgium, whereas uh, – 
Sunday Bloody Sunday was the, the one there, but I never had seen this video before doing research for this because they didn't put this video on any of their video compilations later. Like mm. every video you've ever seen, you see it again and again, but it was filmed in France, like filmed on like a rooftop. And then you could see a acrobat or circus performer doing some stuff in the empty streets. And you've got Edge wearing his hat because it's, it's never too early to, to cover up that male pattern baldness that's that's <laughs> heading his way. But but I really like this. It's it's just it's more pop. And I gotta say that Edge doing the backup hearts, hearts, beat I mean, his backing vocals are a huge part of U2 sound, and he gets almost no credit for it mm-hmm. at all. You know, everyone's like, well, Bono's the singer. You're like, yes, you're absolutely right, he is. But when you hear that in the background, that's always the edge, the harmony or whatever's going in the background. That's always him. And he is sorely underrated as a backup singer or a second Yeah, he, he's very much like Mike Mills from REM. Absolutely, yeah. you're exactly yeah. right. Yeah, like he, like you think to yourself, like, well, he could have been a lead singer too, but I think he's in the same camp. But yeah, kind of that secret weapon of their voices are similar enough where you think maybe it was just double tracked, but it's not. That's him singing a separate part in the back. Yeah, you, and, and you see him do it. I mean, you, yeah. you, he does it live. It's not like they pipe it in live. Correct. He does it live, you know. So yeah. it starts off a little frantic. So like, uh-oh, is this another crazy you know war kind of song you know yeah. the guitars and the drums at first but no it's it's a really nice song and you're right it is a love song but is there a yeah, you know, I, I little never, second meaning maybe? i had never thought about that before but that definitely it could be it could be because how could you that is it that is such a weird concept for us how could you live in a country that's divided like that and there are people that are okay with that what no, no. this is one place and but there are people that are like, no, we don't want to. We don't want to be part of. We want to be. Yes, we want to be part of the empire. And yeah. I wonder too that since they're all from Dublin, from the Republic, not Northern Ireland, did they see it a little bit differently than than people who were actually? I don't want to say they weren't going through it, but not the same way as the people in the people north. Like Belfast, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just wonder if that if they're looking at it through a different lens. But yeah, now that now that you've say, said that, I think that would definitely makes sense. And I'm like, I couldn't be the only person who ever came up with that. So I looked on the internet to see if yeah. there's anything about that. And I didn't see anything about it. It's not like I couldn't huh. see anything that Bono said, yes, well, yes, it was for Ali. But it also had this subliminal, th- I never, I couldn't find anything. Of it. Now, I, I don't have 50 hours to do research on it. So maybe well, somebody could enlighten us and send us something on that. I wonder then, too, if you, I wonder if too, if you took him aside and asked him and he would probably say something like, you know, the Neil Peart saying, if you think that, then there you go. You know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying yes, but I'm not saying no either. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Hi, I'm Deborah Bonham. And I am the Irish werewolf in England, Peter Bullock. <laughs> and you're listening to the ugly American werewolf in London. 
American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we move on from that killer song, a great song in their catalog that they do not play much, but I bet mm. a lot of people would love it if they brought that back sure. to the set yeah. list. I mean, I sure would. Red Lights is the eighth track or third song on the second side. Da-da-da, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to start. Da-da-da. Uh, this may be less of a fit due to the backup singers, and the guitar is not really all there. It's a little between staccato and Edge's usual melodic, you know, mm-hmm. um, tinkering there. Again, Kid Creole and the Coconuts were all over this because they had the backup vocals from the ladies and then the trumpet on there. And how many times do you hear trumpet on a U2 song? That was uh, Kenny Fradley on the trumpet there. So this is right. this is a little different. Yeah, and, and it, it, this is a nice change of pace also. It, it's, it's interesting to hear female voices, really mm-hmm. any other voices besides the, the two of them. So that's kind of nice. I really like what he's doing on the guitar. He's kind of just ripping through the the chords. It doesn't sound like what he's doing. Apparently they wanted the the sax player and then the ladies just showed up, you know, to hang out and they were invited to start singing and apparently one or two of them took their tops off and they were wearing very uh not a whole lot underneath and right. the guys just kind of lost it a little bit. <laughs> You'd think that, you know, maybe you're a little bit elevated in life, but no, you're not. You know, when that happens, I don't care. You, It's just fantastic. But which, I, yes. do, do you remember the first night we spent together at Rollins College? Uh, that was a long time ago, but vaguely, yes, when you were wearing that awful Grateful Dead shirt. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and eventually we went upstairs because it was the boys on the first floors, the girls oh, on the second boy. floor. Okay, yeah. We ended up going to Cynthia's room. And I mean, something similar kind of happened to us right there, man. I'm telling you, all of a sudden, somebody put on Madonna and the shirt started coming off. And I just remember talking to you and like, hey, welcome to college, man. And we kind of clinked our cups there. Like, yes, it's like we knew it was going to be like this, but. Did we, we imagined it, but did we really believe it? You know, it's like, we're going to study at some point, right? (laughs) 
it's like in uh, an animal house where the woman comes through the comes the she's in the Playboy bunny outfit and she comes through the window and lands on the bed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. What, yes. Yeah, I think that's what I was saying too. Although actually, I did apparently at some point in time attend a concert from Cre- Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Oh, you did. I did, yes. It was July 4th, 1991 in beautiful Belgium, uh, Brussels, Belgium. Really? Correct. That name sounded familiar. I'm like, that sounds... And I, I had this I had this scrapbook that I made from a trip that I took, and I put the sticker in there from the, from the thing, and it's like, July 4th, blah, 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 starring Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Wow. <laughs> it's the circle of life. Now, that was the same trip where you went to Jim Morrison's grave in France, and you got out of there before all the crazies started getting Correct. their heads busted. Correct right? Mundo. I'm yeah. going to see, see if you can see this. Is this backwards? Can you see this? No, I can see it. How about that? <laughs> I showed my wife. I was all excited. She's like, you're an idiot. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know, you got your hope chest. I got this sticker from when I saw exactly. the coconuts, you know. Whatever. I knew this would come in handy one day. That's why I saved it. That's amazing. That is so cool. <laughs> that's that's unbelievable to me. You just trump me. I, I can't come up with anything to, to beat that <laughs> on this show. That's for sure. I surrender to you, which is a great segue Whoa. to the fourth song on the second side, Surrender. And this is a pretty long one. I think New Year's Day is about the same length. The, the, those two, These are the two really long ones. Hey, if you're going to have an album called War... Surrender might be an apropos title at some point, like, mm-hmm. uh, but it, this sounds very of its time to me for sure. Okay, okay. It what I what I wrote down here is that the bass is doubling the guitar at the beginning, which okay. doesn't really happen a whole lot, and and it sounds like, and then the guitar goes into it's kind of floating around again. The one thing that I really like is that Clayton does this, like it's like a sliding thing mm-hmm. in, in in kind of the the main riff. It's it's a little different. It's something he hasn't done before, and that's that's a testament to him. I don't think if if you could just isolate the bass tracks on every one of these songs, I don't think any two would be the same. That's an interesting take, and like I said, or like we've said, I think Clayton's really stepping out really big mm-hmm. on this album, and and Larry stepping up too. And I guess that's Lily White pushing them in the right direction. He's he's seen what they can do. He's kind of helped grow them up. Now it's like okay, guys, now it's time to take it to the next level or, or what have you. But now one point that I, I wrote down, but I didn't get to bring up yet is that apparently before they did this, any of the recording, they did a tour of right, a couple, uh, the of pre-war a tour. Yeah. yeah. And they, uh, they worked some stuff out. So they came into the, so the point is they came into the studio hot. Like it wasn't like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Let's, let's get back into this. They were already into it. So they came into this, with with a lot of the material worked out and they had been playing it together so i think that really shows the 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 clayton and mullen dynamic together that they had been playing on tour for a while and they were really insane Yeah, that's yeah, right. Correct. Know, that's it's. Just, we talk about this all the time. It's just so foundational. It gives Bono the chance to do these soaring vocals or to really mm-hmm. scream into that mic to give the edge, the latitude to come out and, and make these different sounds. 
you've seen that it might get loud a, a hundred times, you know? Right. He's got all these toys. Now, maybe he's not using a thousand of them on this record, but he is always searching for more. How can I be different? How can I make different textures, different layers with this guitar? You know, there's so many different things you can do. So he's a mad scientist of sorts. Mm-hmm. And the only reason he can do that is because it's so... It, and it's not just like boom, 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 boom. It's just, it's got the steady beat, but it's also got this groove that you only get when the drummer and the bass player are married to each other in such a way that uh, mm. is special. Right. And they don't, they do after a while, like you don't even have to, you don't even have to talk or look at each other. Like, you know, if you're going to do this, I'm going to do this. And it fits into the song and you don't have to, you don't have to play the same thing over and over again. It doesn't have to be that simple. And to the edge, there is no riff that you have to stick to either that you're playing for the whole song. So yeah, again, they don't really, they don't really fit into any genre. They're kind of their own thing. No one else really plays like you too. I, I yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's obviously it's rock music, but mm-hmm. when they started to have what they call alternative or college music, they had those yeah. kind of charts in the eighties. U two was often on there, or it was kind of a part of them because they don't have. Like alternative music was like there's no guitar solos in it, and there's barely any in any of these songs, right? If they are, they're not right. blistering. They're just yeah. like you say, they serve the song, uh, kind of thing. And and so yeah, they kind of helped usher that in. It's not only just what they're singing about that that makes them not pop or not rock. It's it's also the way they play, you know. So mm-hmm. they're their own thing, and that's another reason why I'm glad they've never really had any other members because they've shown that they can grow and, and have this wide variety of sounds just between the four of them and anyway. Yeah. And I think that comes from, from not really anybody being the quote unquote leader of the band. You know, they all have their ideas and it, it yeah, it just shows you could, there's a lot more space to play with. Yeah, absolutely. And then on 40, which wraps up the record, which was on under a blood red sky, mm-hmm. they show how they can be a little diverse because Live, Adam and Edge switch. They switch instruments, you know, and they play each other's things. Now, on the record, I think Edge played both. But live, they will switch. And I will sing, sing a new song. How long? And they they can kind of fade out that way. Plus, like, Larry can go off. And then Adam can go off. And then Edge can go off. And then Bono can sit there and and do his last singing. And then he can go off. So they can kind of go off one by one here. Yeah. And at the beginning, okay, so at the beginning of the track, there's a little bit of a backwards, and then there's a count in. One, Uh two, three. Okay. Was that sounded like Taxman to me from the Beatles, like a little wink, wink. Cause ah. I'm like, I've heard that something like that before. And I went back and I'm like, it sounds an awful lot. Like, I mean, just that, just that little bit of a wink to the boys. Um, and then they go into the song. And the other thing I like is that it's that you kind of go back to you, you link it back to Sunday, bloody Sunday with, instead of, you know, how long do we, must we sing the song is, I will sing a new song. How long to sing their song? Like it's not, yeah, we're kind. Of, so in a lot of a lot of the records that we look at, like the the tenth song is like kind of the like the eh. Right. But this is almost like we're tying this into the beginning here. This we're coming full circle, and it's a cohesive thing we're trying to put together. <laughs>
it's like a reprise, you know, right. kind of bringing it all back to the front there, you know, uh, and was actually released as a single in Germany. I think they were playing a festival there in the summer, maybe before they played us festival okay. or maybe after I'm not, I'm not sure. But so they released as a single with two hearts as the B side, which would be a killer single to have. Right. You know, uh-huh. that's really cool. So Rare vinyl, where are you? Yeah, exactly. Rarevinyl.com and use code podcast to save 10%. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll look to see if they have that. But so that wraps up the album. Now we mentioned a couple other songs. Endless Deep was the B-side to both Sunday Bloody Sunday and Two Hearts Beat is One. It's mostly an instrumental. I think there's a little, you know, you can kind of hear a where do we go from here. You can kind of hear that. But I think that's Adam and not Bono on there okay. um, making that noise. It's got a great groove, you know. Uh, it's actually pretty cool little little three-minute, not-quite song, but it's, I mean, look, it's obviously a B-side. It doesn't really have lyrics, and it's short, and although it sounds kind of like what they're doing now, I mean, that's an obvious B-side, but I, I do like it. Yeah, it, it, it's the idea of, you know, what fits and what doesn't. You know, it, it's kind of like, what was that even, a, was it a real thing where you just kind of fooling around? But it is nice to see the B-sides from that point in time because you kind of get more of an idea of where they are with that because it's not it's not the polished product that you see on the record so it's it's kind of it's just a little look into what was going on at the time And another song uh, that ended up, I think, on the remaster that came out in the 2000s, Angels Too Tied to the Ground. It's, you know, it's piano again. It's very spare. There's some whispered vocals before it kind of, he sings out, waving that white flag. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I like this. It, it, it's very chill compared to a lot of the other stuff on War. So maybe that's why it didn't get on the album. But again, it, it fits as, as far as the time and the genre mm-hmm. of what they were doing here. I'm glad eventually it, it saw the light of day. You know, that they made the best of you to 1980 to 1990. But they also made a two-disc version of that. Of course, you know me, I am a sucker for the, <laughs> the two-disc that will have B-sides and unreleased tracks and all that stuff. And and you'll you'll see some of those these things on there. So I I, I love that stuff. And you know, you too will reward you. If you're one of those people who wants to dig in and find the old singles, look for B-sides, look for EPs from different countries or whatever, they're going to reward you. And they have a lot of even covers and stuff like that, that they've just recorded over time and they've just kind of kept them. Oh, maybe we'll use that on B-side. Maybe we'll work and do something. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll put it on a soundtrack. Who knows? They, I bet they've got a lot of killer stuff in their catalog that nobody's ever heard. Probably. Yeah, probably. They're, and that's what you want to hear. I mean, you you want to hear it not, yeah, we we had to write 10 songs, we wrote 10 songs, and that was it. You know, you wanted somebody who's creative and can leave stuff on the floor that you can discover later. And yeah, it's good that they would release that to the fans because that's really what you want to hear. You want more. If you like this, you always want some more.
what I was referring to uh, is out on March 17th, uh, which is St. Patrick's Day, I do believe, uh. <laughs> is Songs of Surrender, which is you 2 reworking their old songs. Okay. Now, apparently, there's a super deluxe collector's edition with 40 tracks, uh, and I think it's four CDs, and there's one for every member of the band. They're kind of, you know, here's the Edge. Edge is first, Bono's last. They're all stuff that they've done before. Most all of them are off their big albums. Occasionally, you'll find a non-album single or something from a soundtrack or a B-side or something like that. But they've reworked all these things, and I, I can't. I can't wait to hear this. It's different. It's not a greatest hits album. This is taking their songs and turning them on their head, you know. So some of them, it's probably going to piss us off. Like, oh, no, that's that's too different. Like, why'd they screw that up? Yeah. But some of them, it's going to be like, oh, wow, that's really cool the way they did that. And the, the interesting part about that is, you know, you, you I, I don't know how long they spent recording this record, but do you think to yourself, at, once it's done, well, they could have done this, or, you know, like you were talking about with The Edge, you get a new toy to play with, and you say, oh, this would have fit so well into that. Yeah I'm, interested that to, yeah. yeah, I'm interested to see how how it sounds, you know, and, and you get older too, you know, your your taste change, the way you play changes. So Absolutely. You'll be interested to see, but you're right, there are, I'm sure there are going to be a couple of tracks, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. You messed it up. And I guess it kind of coincides. It coincides with Bono's. I assume it's a biography, but it's it's you know forty songs, which kind of I guess there's a song for every chapter or something like that. I haven't picked it up yet, but Bono, if if you want some help selling it, you're welcome to come on here and we'll help promote it for you. I'm, I'd be Absolutely. happy to do that for you. Um, sure. I, I guess it kind of works somewhat in tandem with that. But you know mm -hmm. me, man. I've got no time to read a book. As, as interesting as I would be to read that book but i can i can listen to to four cds pretty quickly so that that's yeah. my plan and you say you said that was when this march 17th i forgot to put that on the old calendar because yeah I, I would like to i'd like to hear all four if you're gonna yeah if you're gonna go you might as well go all in on this exactly exactly there's a two disc version there's a one disc version of course they have it on lp for you vinyl heads but mm -hmm. I, i'll be getting the four cd version have you ever seen the boys play live i have not I have not. And that's definitely a regret I have because it was, it was one of those things where I, you know, I was too young for the Joshua tree. Mm -hmm. And then, then when Octung baby came out, it was just, it, I think the closest one was in Tampa. So it was, it was not, uh, of course that was a whole nother debacle, but that's fine. Do you, right. re do you remember that when that came out? Oh, sure. Octung baby. Yeah. And, and they had the whole big thing. They were coming around. The first show that they played was in Lakeland, Florida. And I thought to myself, well, that's weird. Lakeland, Florida. Why would they do that? That doesn't yeah. make any sense. When I play Miami, right? Or, you know, exactly. Or New York you know? or, you know, London. But so it, it, I knew there were people that from the dorm that went. They were really like, oh, you too. And at that point in time, like, I like them. But, you know, eh, yeah, go ahead. That was a couple hours drive. They played Octone Baby, which had only been out for like a week or so. Right. Start to finish and said goodnight. And that was it. They're like, you've got to be kidding me, man! So that was a that was an interesting deal. But I think you saw them in Tampa, right? And it was more of a retrospect. They weren't just playing the new stuff. Yeah. Well, so all right. So let's see here. Technically, I've seen them three times, but the one time, the first time I went in Tampa, I was working security. As a fraternity, we we work security oh, show. Oh, that's right, that's and, right. Yeah. And we didn't get paid. We sent all of our money to uh, to a charity or whatever. And I basically just kind of I was I was and I was on the concourse for like Big Audio Dynamite and Public Enemy. But then mm -hmm. when you two came on, I said, "Okay, wait, I'll be right back. You stay here, buddy, and I'll <laughs> be right back." And I just kind of went up there and watched the show as best I could. <laughs> 
and, and that was the Zoo TV tour. Oh, okay, okay. I think, yeah, yeah that cause, wasn't cause it was... just Octoon Baby. That was, that right. was the next one, you know. But eventually I did see him on the 360 tour, Soldier Field in Chicago, on the field, which was really amazing. I think somebody mm-hmm. gave that to me and my wife kind of as our uh, engagement present or something like that. And then I did see them in Louisville in Cardinal Stadium for the Joshua Tree at 30, where they play the Joshua Tree in its uh, in its entirety. And look, a, a plane, because the, the airport's right next to the football stadium, but I swear the plane flew a little low. <laughs> I mean, they're landing coming over, but I feel like he just got a little low. It's like, hey, we know you two's playing. And it went right in front of me. I'm like, wow, that plane is right fucking there, dude. I mean, it looked like I could just reach out and, and, and touch it, you know. And, and a, a, a listener actually sent me a picture of it or maybe a YouTube. And, oh, you know what? It may have even actually been his own phone video of the thing just flying right over there so but those tickets were super expensive jackson like i think I mean, that's that like, may have been part of my my apprehension on this is like when you get into the u2 rarefied air this is going to cost you i know but i mean until i bought genesis second to last show which is in london and it's indoors and i mm-hmm. get it in there in their 70s and that's going to be an older crowd but i'm like this is still a stadium tour. It's not like I'm seeing you up close. And it right. was like 700 or 750 bucks for two tickets. Plus, you got to join the fan club. I remember my wife is like, well, I, she was going someplace fancy, you know, like Vail, Colorado or something for work or, or something like that. And she's going to stay extra. I'm like, no, you are not. You know, you, <laughs> you are staying home with me for these $700 U2 tickets that I bought to take you to. And, you know, and you're going to come with me to this. It's and not going like to. like it. Yes, exactly. You are not bailing on me on this. <laughs> I'm not going with a buddy, you know, and asking him for 400 bucks for the seat or whatever. You're like, you are coming with me as my date woman and you're going to love it. <laughs> And she did at the end of the day. But like mm-hmm. I told that in front of her friends, and they're like, oh, you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, but look, you need to resolve that. You, you need to see them. And the thing is, they usually play Jacksonville, of all places. They usually play that stadium for whatever reason, you know. I, I'm pretty sure they did it on Pop Mart. I'm pretty sure they did it on several of the tours after that, you know. So, so I wonder, do you think this will be a touring deal? <sighs> That's a fair question. Would would you tour on a reworked thing, and then would you play the reworked versions? Because wouldn't that? Because if if you're going to play a club show to the mm. super fans, then you can play those reworked versions. That they're yeah. happy for that. But if you're playing to tens of thousands of people, you you may be able to do a couple of them. But you kind of have to play play the right way, right? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People so. yelling at you. Play it the right way. Well, yeah, you're right. If if it's a if it's a stadium tour, it would have to be like a it would have to be something that people would pay that much money to go to to see the hits. Right. Yeah. To, to hear if you like, pay four hundred bucks a ticket, you right. better play them the right way. <laughs> so we'll see. I it's definitely on my bucket list. Definitely something I need to do. You're right, because this is this band, now that I think about it, has been such a big part of our youth and growing up and into our college days that, yeah, it would be a disservice not to see them. Well, that wraps our take on U2's war. 
Hard to believe that that one's 40, released in February 1983. Gosh, it makes me feel old, you know? I mean, even the song 40 is now 40. What are the odds of that? But I know New Year's Day, Sunday Bloody Sunday, even Two Hearts, timeless classics, people love. They've been playing them for years. Maybe not Two Hearts quite as much as we discussed on the show, but it really helped launch you two in the superstardom, and I really hope that they do tour this coming year. It sounded like when I heard Bono on Sparkless, they were doing something special. They were working up a special idea for all of us, so I hope that I get to see them and that everyone else around the world does as well. So, as usual, guys, we gotta know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You have gotta let us know. You email us, uglyamericanwerewolf at gmail.com, or tweet us and DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. Let us know the bands, the records, the concerts, the rock properties you want us to review. And thanks as always to Pantheon Podcast. We love being a part of the Pantheon family. You can check out pantheonpodcast.com to see all the many shows out there. And of course, special thanks to our sponsor, rarevinyl.com. And look, guys, you know U2 has made a lot of different LPs, 7-inch, 12-inch, CDs, whatever. They have a lot of stuff in different countries. Go to rarevinyl.com and use code PODCAST to save 10% off anything you buy. Not just your first order, but all your orders going forward. You know there's going to be some killer U2 stuff on there that you might not be able to find anywhere else. They ship all over the world. They keep everything in amazing condition for you. So check out rarevinyl.com. Use that code PODCAST. Get your premium U2 property from rarevinyl.com. Next week, well, we've got some cool guests lined up in the next few weeks. I don't want to give anything away. We're excited about some stuff. We are going to also be doing some albums that are having big anniversaries that were big to us. So you're just going to have to stay tuned. Subscribe and download wherever you get your podcast, be it Apple, Spotify, Good Pods is good to us. They just told me we were in their top 10 on a couple of their lists. Wherever you get them, please download, subscribe, and hey, if you're thinking about it, leave us a positive review. It just helps us grow the show. It helps us find more and more rock fans like you. So until next time, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Were they shot? Were they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.